On the record. On News Talk. You're very welcome back to On the Record. Kieran Cuddihy with you until one o'clock. Now, as we've been discussing today, a hundred years ago, it all ended the First World War, the eleventh hour of the eleventh day of the eleventh month, Armistice Day. And in Ireland, the end of the war brought about scenes of total delirium on the streets of different cities and towns. Uh, soldiers were kissed, the booze flowed, airplanes performed loop de loops over Dublin, and people rejoiced. But of course, there was a few uh, contrarians as well. Donald Fallon, chief contrarian, chief rioter, uh, here with us now in studio. Uh, people did take. The the streets and riot and, and we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, as well uh, this day 100 years ago uh, but just Donald in terms of I suppose Armistice Day and at that 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month there's something so clean that you don't yeah. get with you know, isn't there just... Any other war? There's something kind of, I always describe it as almost dreamlike about the way World War One ends because it had become this nightmare that was just unprecedented in, in human history and the sense of political depression, you know, all over Europe by 1918 was very real. And I don't think people felt like not only was the war not going to end in 1918, I think many people felt it wasn't going to end in, in their lifetime. You know, and the romantic slogans of 1914 were, were long faded from kind of popular uh, imagination by then. So can you imagine getting the news in November 1918 that, that this thing was over? And I think like a lot of people listening to this this morning, I found myself now over the last few weeks thinking a lot about relations of mine. Uh, Thomas Howard, my great grandfather, he survived the Somme injured at Passchendaele uh, in the uniform of a Royal Dublin Fusilier. But he never really made it back from the war. I mean, he, he came back a broken man. He died destitute in a hospital in Dublin, buried in a pauper's grave in Glasnevin. And I always think, you know, for all these people at home in Cork and Galway, Dublin, Belfast, that were singing their songs and you know, championing the fact the war was over and won, if you were a soldier, you know, <laughs> it never ended. It no. went on and on and on. And the beautiful words of Liam O'Flaherty, the, the, play, the, the playwright and the writer, he said that he had shell shock. He said, you have to go through life with that shell bursting in your head. You know, for those boys, it never really ended. Yeah, and there's plenty of people writing about that fact. Elaine Byrne, actually, as well, in the Business Post today, her column is about the same relation as you, her great-grandfather, and she uses that exact description. He, she, he never came back from yeah, the war, uh, was wounded there as well. Um, what was, the, when we come back to Armistice Day itself, like, uh, what was the reaction in Dublin? I mean, on the streets of Dublin, the news of the end of the war was just this mad, almost unprecedented jubilation. And reading the newspapers, it sounds like it was a great day to be a journalist in Dublin because everywhere you looked something was happening from fireworks going off to you know a mock funeral through the streets but by about half three the city was well on its way you know and remember again to make that point anyone that had lost a son or brother or husband probably wasn't taking part in these scenes of jubilation but it began as this great celebration and not surprisingly given the fact this is Ireland in 1918 very ugly scenes of kind of rioting and violence followed on probably in no small part influenced by the drink uh, as the day went on as much as anything else but it went on for days and these Armistice Day riots, this kind of shameful, forgotten moment of Revolutionary Ireland's story because multiple lives were lost. Uh, and taking to the streets wasn't just a, a Dublin thing? Everywhere. A- I mean, all over Europe. In November, people were just sick of it. They were sick of the war and they were coming out in their thousands. And in different countries, it took different forms. Germany, the workers come out onto the streets in, in Berlin on the 9th of November, uh, 1918. And they're armed, they raise the red flag uh, and they proclaim that basically their time has come and they want the head of the Kaiser. And there's a beautiful eyewitness account of it. They say the whole of proletarian Berlin, the grey impoverished mass that has starved and bled for four years rose up. So this is a world where everything is up for grabs. If you think about 1918, the Russian Revolution has just happened, the Bolsheviks took power there, anything felt like it could happen. But Berlin is happening against a different backdrop because they've lost. You know, there's this, They know they're losing the war, there's defeat. Irish people, some of them, 
wanted Germany to win the war, but many didn't. You know, hundreds of thousands of Irishmen were in the British war effort. So they're there to celebrate in some ways. And right across the island of Ireland, people celebrate the end of the war. Uh, there's this, I find this a mad image, the Falls Road in West Belfast, you know, the nationalist Falls yeah. Road. You wouldn't see a Union Jack flying on the Falls Road then or now. So how did they do it? The Stars and Stripes goes up. Ah, the American I see. Flag. President Woodrow Wilson uh, has brought about the end of the war. The Stars and Stripes and these green flags for the, for the Irish Parliamentary Party. And, you know, if you were a nationalist in Ireland, that angle was often pushed. America won the war, not Britain. Sure, look at Wilson. That was nice He's and the, neat, wasn't it? The People's Peacemaker, they call him <laughs> on the front of the Freeman's Journal. And they believe that, look, when America ends this war, they'll all sit down around the great big table in Europe. They'll talk about, you know, this was the freedom of small nations. Mm. We're a small nation. We'll get our independence. Thank you very much, Uncle Sam. And in terms of the crowds, uh, I'm sure there was people on the streets all over Ireland, but Dublin must have led the it way. Just it just sounds just insane. In the I sheer mean, population. There was a, a, a beautiful colour piece the next day in The Independent, and they said that there were aeroplanes in the sky performing loop-the-loops and gracefully gambling in a cloudless sky, their wings flashing in the sunlight. Down on the street, the students of Trinity College Dublin staged a mock funeral uh, for the Kaiser. They commandeered a hearse. I don't know where they got a hearse <laughs> or where the hearse was meant to be going, but they commandeered a hearse in which, quote, were laid the remains of the Kaiser wearing a gas mask. The funeral, preceded by a number of students and followed by a large crowd of laughing soldiers and civilians, created general amusement and added considerably to the hilarity of the proceedings. What the newspapers didn't mention is that the effigy of the Kaiser was actually wrapped in a, quote, unquote, Sinn Féin flag. So there is a tension in the air you know there is a tension yeah. in the air and, and for some unionists like the students of Trinity College in 1918 it's a chance to have a dig at the Shinners and, and things did go nuts they did I mean by, by the end of the day they're attacking the Sinn Féin headquarters up at, up at the uh, at Harcourt Street not, not far from where we are number 6 Harcourt Street and that became this repeated target uh, over the following night and remember when you read the 1916 proclamation it talks about gallant allies in Europe yeah. I mean that means Imperial Germany so this mob of people including soldiers garrisoned in Dublin you know, they don't have a whole lot of love for Sinn Féin. And one of the lads who's in the office at the time, Simon Donnelly, a volunteer, he talks about how a volley of stones came through the window heralding their arrival and that we were armed with hurlies and sticks becoming entangled in around the hallway where, I love this, skull cracking was the order of the day. So there's just madness. There's coal. There's, you know, stones are coming through the window and going back out again. Someone that has the, the, the wise idea of trying boiling water out over the crowd. Harry Boland is on the premises during the attack and he probably didn't help proceedings because because Boland makes his way to the window and starts shouting out at them and he says, you know, you might wreck this building, but you'll never wreck Sinn Féin, which is the last, <laughs> the last thing to say to a mob laying siege yeah. to the Sinn Féin offices. Oh, fair point, we'll all go home. He was also a good GAA man, uh, Harry Boland. I mean, he refereed uh, an All-Ireland hurling final, so I imagine he was quite lethal with a hurl in hand yeah. uh, attacking this crowd. He was one of those, as you said, cracking skulls. <laughs> as they made their way through the doors. Uh, there was, like, you know, joking aside, there was notable deaths, There was. There? I mean, a, a very sad story, a very distinguished writer and a journalist called Seamus O'Kelly who was working in the, the Sinn Féin office one of the times it was attacked I mean it was attacked again and again over the 11th, the 12th and the 13th uh, the 13th of November the building is just laid siege to and, and O'Kelly is in there working away at his desk and he's a, he's a contemporary of James Joyce in UCD he's a very good writer in his, own, in his own way and he tries to fight off this mob and during a melee you know, some accounts say he has a heart attack against the panic of it all but he's taken to the Jervis Street Hospital and he dies of a brain hemorrhage on the 14th of November so there's this air of just absolute madness uh, in the city and lives are lost and they seem to be lost on both sides as well. And, and it got worse at Liberty Hall. It got, I mean, Liberty Hall was just this hate symbol, you know, for, for a mob of soldiers. I mean, James Connolly hung a banner over Liberty Hall when the First World War began and it said, we serve neither King nor Kaiser, but Ireland. You know, and if you've been at war with the Kaiser, 
you wouldn't have a great view of that banner. So the Independent has this great report. A large gathering of soldiers, sailors and civilians singing Rule Britannia and shouting Liberty Hall observed coming down uh, Eden Quay. Shots were fired from, I mean, it took armed men in Liberty Hall to protect that building. It could have gone up in flames. And, you know, in this violence on the streets, several soldiers and policemen, Michael Collins actually writes about going out to attack soldiers on the streets of Dublin uh, on Armistice Day. Several soldiers and policemen were reported injured as well. So, I mean, no one came off whiter than white over the course of these riots. And then I guess against that backdrop, it's probably not surprising that the whole issue of Armistice Day and how to kind of commemorate it uh, immediately becomes a subject of debate. We think this is a new... We think James McLean started this debate, you know, when he said... (laughs) I'm not wearing a poppy for for Stoke City or whatever it may be. This is a debate. This debate was happening in 1918. You know, since the day the war ended, and arguably even when the war was still happening, people were just so divided by the the, the scale of it, I suppose, and the meaning of it and the memory of it. Again, as early as 1918, uh, and with people coming back from the war, you had the the establishment of what's called the Irish Nationalist Veterans Association. 3,000 veterans of the war said, we're not marching in any victory parade. We don't think this is something to celebrate. And the widow of Tom Kettle, who was a, a very famous Irish MP who died at the Western Front, she said that you know, the men who went to France have been betrayed. But for other people, I think it was seen as a very noble cause. It was something that should be remembered. And they came out year after year. And they came out in their thousands. I mean, there was 40,000 people at Armistice Day in 1926. So this idea that World War I was, was forgotten in Ireland, I don't think it was in, in any way. And I think when you look at someone like James McLean, I mean, I believe firmly in the right of anyone listening to this, who wants to, to commemorate the events of the war in whatever way they want to. If you want to wear a poppy, wear a poppy. If you don't want to wear a poppy, don't wear a poppy. But I think it's quite mad now in the UK that it's imposed. I mean, you wouldn't get near a camera on Sky News or BBC Mm. unless you're wearing a poppy now. And I think it diminishes the symbol by by forcing people to wear it. But in Ireland, I think what we're ultimately interested in are those kind of great human stories. And we do ask, you know, was your granddad there? Was your great granddad there? Yeah. What's your, I mean, some of the stories are so sad. St. Peter's GAA Club from West Belfast, they lost so many of their young lads. I think they lost nine of their starting 15 that they had to close the club down. They couldn't go on. Reservists from Dublin, young lads, you know, they had no choice in the matter. We didn't have conscription in this country. But if you were a reservist and a war broke out, off, off you go. went. And they didn't know what they were going into. So, I mean, the stories like that, no matter what we think about the war, and I think it was slaughter and undignified slaughter, the sacrifice of people and the bravery of individuals is what we, what we love in this country. All right, very well said. Uh, my thanks to Donald Fallon, author of the Come Here To Me blog. Uh, book volume two is out now uh, for people listening. Now, to finish, look, with any sort of history, including this period, it's always worthwhile to go back to the original source. And we're going to listen to some old tapes which were recorded in some of the German prisoner of war camps during the First World War uh, that we've been talking about. This was a project, it was conducted by a German teacher at the time who went around talking to the prisoners and asking them to either say a few words or to sing a song. Uh, so the first soldier recorded was Edward Duggan. He was born in Waterford, down 20 Main Street, down in Tremor. Uh, he was educated at local Christian Brothers. Um, it, it's unclear whether or when he joined the Irish Guards, but it, it's very likely that it would have been before the war broke out in 1914. Uh, so he was captured at Ypres in Belgium on uh, November 6th. 1914 he would have been 26 at the time and he was listed as a prisoner of war in the Watford News uh, the following May by May 1915 they realised he was a prisoner of war and he was listed as such uh, down home in Watford and Tremor so here he is recorded from a German prisoner of war camp singing Where the Shannon Flows Down to the Sea There's a fretting spot in Ireland that I'll always live for my land Where the clearings and the plowny 
and the more man that I'll meet her, with a half chance to to meet her, for there's not to call him sweeter, where the river Janet flows. Yes, uh, where the river Shannon flows. Edward Duggan. If people are listening from Tremor down Waterford and your surname is Duggan, perhaps Edward is a long-lost relation. Um, we're going to stay back in time, listen to one more Irish soldier from these recordings. Uh, James McCassie was a farmer from Lachlan Bridge in Carlow. Uh, he was there with the regular Royal Dublin Fusiliers. Carlow would have been part of its recruitment district at the time. And he was captured at Lean in Belgium in December 1914. Uh, so the war hadn't uh, broken out that long before he was captured. And he was with the 2nd Battalion of the Fusiliers. And they were the only ones in the Western Front at the time, uh, the 2nd Battalion of the Royal Dublin Fusiliers. So as I said, these soldiers were asked by this German teacher to record any song they knew. And James McCassie uh, from Lachlan Bridge recorded in the camp and no one to welcome me home. In twilight I wandered far away from my home far away from the old house of your fatherless motherless sadly I roam I have no one to welcome me home no one to welcome me home far away. No one to welcome me home. For it's when I return to old Ireland again, I'll have no one to welcome me home. Then it's good by my boy over far away to go. And leave your poor mother alone. For it's when you'll return to the land of your birth, you'll have no one to welcome you home. No one to welcome you home far away. No one to welcome you home. For it's when you'll return to the land of your birth, you'll have no one to welcome you home. For it's of times I think on that little brown pine, in old Ireland far over the sea, that little brown cross on the side of the hill, which calls my poor mother for me. But it's now I'm a stranger in strange lands I roam. I have no one to welcome me home. No one to welcome you home far away. No one to welcome you home. When you'll return to old Ireland again, you'll have no one to welcome you home. I don't know, are there any uh, Macassies left down around uh, old Lachlan or Lachlan Bridge or Bagnus down that part of Carlo? But I hope there are and I hope they're listening. That's an um, incredible primary source of history. Isn't it? That, 
teacher deserves remarkable credit for having the, the sense to do that. I mean, in, in 1940 and 1915, that's yeah. just hair-raising. Well, stuff. actually, credit as well to Ronan McGreevy in the Irish Times, who a few years ago discovered some of these recordings and wrote about them and they were published as well. Um, so, look, that's almost it from us here today. Off the Ball is up next on News Talk, as always. My thanks to Jojo Cardozo, who's on sound, and the rest of the production team, Roisin Davis and Stephen Jordan, to play us out as something a little bit more contemporary, but still along similar lines. This is the Lost Brothers and Soldier song. Some driver, how far we've come. Can you tell me the road?